Well, I didn't fall so far behind today in the series on church discipline that we had to catch up tonight. So if you were trying to second guess me and got ahead of me, then too bad. We're going to go back to Acts for one last message, <laughs> one second last message on Acts. Um, and this one I've called the perils and power of the gospel. We're really going to be looking at a couple of chapters in a kind of survey way, the last two chapters of the book of Acts. I figure uh, if I can't do all the stuff in the middle, I'll at least end the book. It's a nice way to go. This 27th chapter of uh, Acts especially is one of the most vivid pieces of writing I've ever run across in any literature in any language as it describes the voyage of the Apostle Paul and his companions from Palestine to Rome and the storm and the shipwreck and the events that transpired uh, on the island of Malta. And uh, it's one of those passages that uh, the, uh, <clears throat> the preacher's main responsibility is to stay out of the way of the passage because the passage has such uh, vividness, such detail, it's really hard to uh, do much Again, it doesn't take a whole lot of uh, interpretation, doesn't take a whole lot of exposition. Of course, there are a lot of little details that archaeology and history and so forth can tell us about those details, but Luke has put together such a fascinating and uh, moving account of what happened that uh, we really want to just look at that, and then when you come into chapter 28, we sort of see the sequel, what happened on Malta, and then a little account of what took place while Paul was awaiting his trial before Caesar in Rome. But what I want us to keep in mind as we look at these passages together um, is to realize that although there is a great deal of peril that attaches to the ministry of the gospel, and in this instance it's particularly uh, physical peril uh, from natural kinds of disasters or threats, yet there is power and effectiveness in the gospel and there is a plan and purpose that God has for each one of us that we must fulfill and that we will fulfill in doing his work. Uh, not all of us are called to the kinds of things that the Apostle Paul was called to, but, um, and most of our lives are much less uh, interesting, uh, challenging in some ways. Uh, I guess at least two of our number have uh, been storm-tossed in the uh, Adriatic Sea, so you can talk to Bob and Martha Cooey about near shipwrecks in the Mediterranean uh, if you want to afterwards, and they can give you uh, their version of the same kind of experience. But God has called each one of us to serve him, and he has given each one of us a task to do. Most of us do not have the benefit of a special revelation defining precisely what that task will be, but as we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, he does shed upon our pathway an increasing sense of how we ought to serve him and where, and that road takes us through many dangers, toils, and snares, and yet always with the promise that God will do his good work through us until our task is complete. And only then need we be ready to go to glory. Now again, we don't, most of us have any uh, special revelation about the time or the circumstances of our death. We know that if the Lord delays his second coming sufficiently long enough, then most of us will die. Maybe all of us who are here will die before the Lord's return. 
But we can be confident from what the Scripture says that we won't die one minute too soon. We may die too soon to suit some of our friends and neighbors and family and friends, maybe too late to suit others. But we'll be just on time for what the Lord has in view for us because he has a task for us to complete. And as some have said, we are immortal until the Lord is finished with us and then he'll take us home. Well, the Apostle Paul did have special revelation from Jesus Christ telling him what his particular task was. And he mentions it a couple of times in the book of Acts. And just before we look at these chapters specifically, I want to draw your attention to them. One is in the ninth chapter where we have the account of Saul's conversion in its uh, initial report by Luke. And in the 15th verse, after Christ has challenged Saul for his persecution of the church, the Lord says to Ananias, gives him the message that is to be conveyed to Paul concerning Paul's mission. Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their king, and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Christ commissioned Paul to be an apostle to the Gentiles and to appear before kings and the people of Israel with the gospel. Well, you read the intervening chapters of the book of Acts and you find that that took him on three missionary journeys to a number of lands, a number of towns, a number of people, where he testified concerning Christ the King to Gentiles as well as Jews. And by the time we come into the latter chapters of Acts, he's beginning to appear before civil authorities, especially Roman authorities, to give an account for what he's been doing. And in that connection, in the 26th chapter of Acts, he must give a defense before Herod Agrippa, the Jewish king. And in that defense, he recounts his conversion experience, and there we have a little bit more elaborate statement of the mission that Jesus gave to him, what he was to do. In verse 15 of the 26th chapter of Acts, Paul says, Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So that's the commission that Jesus gave through Ananias to Paul, to go and preach the gospel to Jews, but even more so to Gentiles and to their leaders. Well, Paul had been arrested in Jerusalem because of his involvement in a purification ceremony at the temple. He was accused falsely by the Jews of speaking against the temple and leading a riot, and he was taken into custody by the Roman authorities in order to protect him. He was conveyed to Caesarea, where he appeared before the Roman governors, Felix and Festus, and then finally King Agrippa. And seeing that it was sort of a dead end there, he appealed to Caesar for a trial. As a Roman citizen, Paul had the right to claim an audience with the emperor himself in his own defense. 
And that brings us then to the circumstances of this voyage to Rome that's recorded by Luke in chapter 27. Festus writes a letter and sends Paul to Rome to await trial before Caesar. Now, Paul didn't really expect to arrive in Rome under those circumstances. He'd already written to the Roman church, I plan to come there. I plan to make that my base of operations for evangelistic and church planting work in the western part of the empire. Paul said to the Romans, I intend to go all the way to Spain on the western extremity of the Roman empire, and I'm going to begin in Rome. Well, at that point, he imagined that he would go to Rome under his own, uh, uh, by his own will, uh, at his own discretion. Little did he know that the Lord Jesus would send him to Rome as a prisoner, and yet he was just as sure to reach Rome, just as sure to stand trial and be a witness before Caesar than he would have been if he had gone completely in his own free will because Christ had appointed him to that task and sent him to it. And so while we read of the events of this voyage and particularly the storm and the shipwreck, Paul is confident through it all, and he receives confirmation partway through it that God's will for him hasn't changed. God still intends to send a witness to Caesar, and the witness is going to come in the person of the Apostle Paul who will give his defense in trial before Caesar, and nothing in heaven or on earth, on the dry land or in the sea can possibly thwart that will. And I hope as we read this chapter, you'll be encouraged that God has a plan for you, a work for you to do also. Whatever your place in the body of Christ, Christ has put you in his body to do a particular job. And however difficult that seems, however much resistance there may be at times, you can have the confidence that the Apostle Paul had that until your work is done, he will keep you and protect you and guide you and then he will take you home to glory. So let's look at the chapter for a few minutes tonight and uh, let the Spirit of God speak to us through the vivid words of Luke. And I'll try and keep the commentary to a minimum, and then we'll just draw a couple of conclusions at the end. Luke writes, beginning at the first verse of chapter 27, When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramitium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia. And we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed in Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so that they might provide for his needs. From there we went out to sea again and passed to the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had, difficult, have dif had difficulty arriving off Cnidus. The wind did not allow us to hold our course. We sailed to the Lee of Crete, opposite Salmoni. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens, near the town of Lycia. So the ship had sailed north along the coast of Palestine, 
along the coast of Syria, and then because the winds in the late summer and early fall were already beginning to blow strongly from the west, they kept to the lee side, the protected side of the island of Cyprus, and then moved along to the south of what is now modern-day Turkey, making a few stops along the way. And then they changed ships and sailed off around, again, the protected side of Crete. In that time of year in the Mediterranean, the winds begin to blow very strongly, and they uh, were looking for as much protection as possible, but already there was difficulty in making headway, and they were falling farther and farther behind schedule. And so there is a growing sense of apprehension already. Not only is the wind against them, they're having trouble making headway, but the later in the year it becomes, the more and more dangerous it is to sail a voyage like they were contemplating to go all the way to Italy. And so Luke writes in verse 9, much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the fast. That fast referred to is the Jewish Day of Atonement, which came in late September or October each year, depending upon the date uh, of the uh, calendar. And uh, according to the Roman seamen of those days, if you sailed after October, the middle of October, you were looking for trouble. And if you sailed after the middle of November, you were out of your mind because you would, could count on shipwreck and disaster. So you can see that as they're making their progress, that progress is slow, but the danger is increasing, and the apprehension is increasing. So Paul gives a warning and an encouragement to the men that they ought not to proceed. They ought to stay where they are. Verse 10, so Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that they would sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. Paul gave them a piece of good advice, but because of the packaging, because he wasn't a nautical expert, because he wasn't a sailor or didn't have a vested interest in the ship, they said, what does this guy know? You don't take advice in sailing from a Jewish preacher any more than you take advice in fishing from a Nazarene prophet, right? You don't take advice from people who don't know what they're talking about. And Jesus didn't know about fishing, and Paul doesn't know about sailing. So obviously the Gentiles say, we'll talk to the owner. After all, it's his ship. He stands to lose. We'll talk to the pilot of the ship who has the expertise, and then we'll put it to a majority vote like good democratic people, and we'll decide to sail on. Bad idea, right? But that's what they did. They decided to make for Phoenix if they could, which was on the southwestern shore of the island of Crete, and it had a sufficiently protected harbor that they could stay the winter there and then carry on in their voyage to Rome come spring when things would be more favorable. And so Luke carries on in his account. This was uh, a harbor in Crete, he says at the end of verse 12, facing both southwest and northwest, a good place to be protected. Well, they set off, and Luke says, when a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted. There was some initial encouragement, a nice, easy breeze to carry them on their way 
to the port at Phoenix. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. We're told that in those days they pulled a little dinghy lifeboat behind the boat, uh, and here they had to take it out to protect it from being smashed up and to lash it to the deck. Verse 17, when the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Now, I'm no sailor, but I guess that when you start tying rope around your hull, you're beginning to think you're in serious problems. You've got something to worry about. And so they cinched that ship up, trying to hold it together and see if they could make it. Because at this point, returning to shore and making Phoenix were completely out of the question. That ship was running before the wind with all of its hurricane force. And there was no turning back. It was just a question of whether or not they would be able to weather the storm. And so as the story goes on in verse 16, as we passed to the lee of a, Oh, excuse me, I got that one. Um, middle of 17. Fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Citrus, which was on the northern shore of Africa, still some distance away, but they figured they were moving uh, and might well hit those sandbars, they lowered a sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. So they tried to slow themselves down a little bit by dropping a sea anchor and see if they couldn't buy some time while the storm passed through. Verse 18, we such took, took such a violent beating from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. You go down below decks and you decide, do I really need this? Nope, over it goes. Do I need this? Nope, over it goes. And everything that could be chucked over the side except for essential equipment went over the side, throwing the cargo overboard. And probably that uh, owner and the pilot who had advised that they go on began to shed their bitter tears as the cargo, the paying customer's goods, went over the side, you know. But it was their choice. And then on the third day, verse 19, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Uh, now things that you need to sail the ship uh, were now going overboard and it's been suggested that they may have let some of that stuff dangle behind the ship also to try and give it some kind of resistance to the wind, like the sea anchor itself. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. And so they had gotten themselves into terrible, terrible trouble. And then Paul speaks to the crowd again. And having just finished reading Dale Carnegie's book on how to win friends and influence people, he goes up to tell the centurion and the captain and the pilot, I told you so. No, that's it. It's in the book. I told you so. After that, men had gone a long time without food. Paul stood up before them. These are frightened, hungry sailors. Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Now, one would expect that after the cargo and after the tackle, the Apostle Paul would have been the next thing over the side, right? Certainly makes sense. You should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. But maybe as the sailors were crowding in on him, he went to say, but there's more. There's more. Then you would have spared yourself and this damage and loss, but now I urge you to keep up your courage. 
because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. And then he explains why he can have this confidence, this hope. I mean, why should they believe his optimistic report any more than they believed his advice about when and where to sail? Well, there was good reason. For Paul reports in verse 23, Last night an angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. So Paul had reason for his confidence, and he conveyed that reason by witnessing to the men who were there on board ship, so frightened, so hungry, having abandoned all hope of ever being saved. Paul reminds them of God's promise to him. And he reminds himself in that very report, as God had testified to him, that that possession that God has of him, that care, that concern to use him, has not changed. God is the one, Paul says, whose I am. I belong to him, and he to me. And that is the bedrock of my security, of my confidence. And more than that, God is the one, says Paul, whom I serve. And God had a plan for him involving a trial before Caesar. And God had revealed to him that in order to get Paul to the place where he could stand trial before Caesar, he had graciously given him the lives of all of those who were on board the ship with him, sailors and passengers alike, so that Paul might be conveyed finally safely to Rome to be, his, to be the witness of Christ before the emperor himself. And so Paul was confident. He was fearless in the face of that terrifying storm, and he encouraged the men who were with him. I have faith in God, he says, that it will happen just as he told me. Now he does remind them that they aren't finished with the trial yet. The ship must run aground. The ship must be destroyed. But if they stay with Paul and stay with the ship, then according to the word of the Lord, they will all live. They will all be spared. Not one will be lost. And so Luke carries on his narrative. Verse 27, on the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings, and found again, uh, found, took soundings again and found that it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that they would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. Uh, what do they say about foxhole conversions? I guess there's some uh, uh, deck conversions for sailors, too. You drop anchor and you pray for daylight so that you can see what's coming and how to navigate in those shallow waters. In an attempt to escape from the ship, some sailors, apparently who were not encouraged by Paul's message, some sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea while they were pretending that they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it fall away. That's the Navy version of burning your bridges behind you, you see. The only lifeboat goes over the side 
and they are going to live or die with Paul in that ship. The centurion, at least, was convinced this time he was going to listen to what the apostle had to say. Verse 33, just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he had said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. I imagine that was an interesting moment for the apostle as well as those sailors. Uh, as far as we know, the storm is still whipping around, and Paul tells them that they ought to eat because they hadn't eaten for 14 days. And he says, nothing is going to happen to you. Not one single hair from your head will be lost. So eat. You need it to keep your strength up. You need it in order to survive. And then, I guess, as casually as you can, you know, looking relaxed and acting relaxed, you, uh, you stand on this pitching, heaving deck in front of these hungry sailors, and, and you give thanks to God for the bread, just like there was nothing to worry about, which there wasn't. And you casually eat the meal, and the, the sailors say, well, I guess we can. And they took the bread, and they received the nourishment and the encouragement from Paul. When daylight came... They did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The, the bow struck fa stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. Roman soldiers never forgot for very long that the penalty for losing a prisoner was death. And even in the most difficult circumstances, they were going to make sure that if they survived, they weren't executed for losing the prisoners that they had been entrusted to. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life, and he kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest were to get there on planks or on pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land in safety. What a story. What a magnificent display of the power of God in providence and the even greater power of God in his keeping grace for his servant Paul and those whom he had graciously given to Paul, the lives of whom were spared because they stayed with him in the boat under the care of Almighty God. But the story goes on. You would think that this would be the time to sort of relax now. There's nothing more to fear. I mean, you just survived a hurricane, a shipwreck. But even yet, God shows us again how he keeps his servant until he has done his job. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself to his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer. 
For though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effect. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. Isn't it remarkable how the unbelievers keep drawing the wrong conclusions? Paul had been declared a god before for performing miracles, and he cried out to the Gentiles not to worship him, not to offer sacrifice, because he wasn't a god, he was just a man. But here, this group of islanders there, as they observed this miraculous preservation around the fire uh, there at Malta, go from saying he must be a murderer, he must be guilty of terrible sin because justice is caught up with him even after the storm, to saying when nothing happened to him, well, he must be a god. He must have divine power. Well, Paul was neither a murderer nor was he a god. He was a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ under the care of of God the Almighty. And while those people sat there and watched Paul, having been stung by this poisonous viper, they waited and waited and waited, thought maybe he'd blow up puffy and die, or just heal over from a cardiac arrest. And they waited a long time, says Luke, and nothing unusual happened. God kept him. God cared for him. And so, verse 7, there was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and for three days entertained us hospitably. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and after prayer placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways, and when we were ready to leave, to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. After three months, writes Luke, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship, just like the other one, with the figures, figurehead of the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. Those were the uh, sort of patron gods of sailors. We put in, a, put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day the south wind came up, and on the following day we reached Puteoli, where we found some brothers who invite, there we found some brothers who invited us to spend a week with them. And so we came to Rome. The brothers there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Paul had no way of knowing for sure what kind of reception he would receive when he reached Italy, and so he was much encouraged by the presence of those brothers who had traveled down from Rome to meet him and to greet him and to encourage him on his way. And so Paul gave thanks that this, too, was a demonstration of Christ's care, of Christ's provision to bring him safely to Rome. And then when Paul arrived there in Rome, though he could have been incarcerated in any number of ways, he received the relatively lenient imprisonment by being allowed to live by himself in a home that he rented with a soldier to guard him. And then Luke goes on, three days later he called together the leaders of the Jews. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, my brothers, Although I have done nothing against our people or against the custom of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem 
and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. But when the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any charge to bring against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and to talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, We have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of our brothers who have come from there has reported or said anything about you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. From morning till evening, he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he said, and others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your forefathers when he said to Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes with the, and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. When Paul gets to Rome, he's concerned to meet the Jewish community, the Jewish leaders, first of all. After all, it was at Jewish inciting that he had first been arrested in Jerusalem. And those people from Jerusalem were to send representatives and documents on to Caesar so that he could be tried. And he wanted to see what the progress of the case was from their point of view. And when he found out that they hadn't heard anything about him, nor had they received any visitors or any letters concerning him, but did want to talk with him about his faith, he welcomed the opportunity, as he had in so many other towns and so many other synagogues, to preach to his brethren according to the faith concerning the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And large numbers came and heard what he had to say from morning till evening as he tried to convince them concerning Jesus from the law of Moses and the prophets. And again, like elsewhere, some were convinced and others would not believe. And in light of that failure to believe, Paul recollected the words of the Spirit of God through Isaiah the prophet, which really explained why they would not believe and why they would not come to Christ. It was the message that God had given to Isaiah, indicating that the people would become dull of hearing and blind in their eyes and callous in their hearts and would not hear, would not repent, would not believe. Remember what we were saying this afternoon about the seriousness of failing to hear the call of God? God turned from the Jews to the Gentiles because though they were his ancient people, though he had shepherded them for thousands of years, they would not listen to his voice. They would not hear. They would not repent. They would not believe. And so in verse 28, Paul says, Therefore I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. That message, which was such a hopeless message for the Jews in that they would not believe, is at the very same time a very hopeful message for the Gentiles because Paul says they will listen. 
Here you have the fulfillment of what Jesus was saying in John 10, as we read it this afternoon. Other sheep have I that are not from this fold. And although Paul had already gathered many Gentiles into the kingdom of heaven, now he anticipates an even greater work of the gospel among the Gentiles. They will listen, they will come, and they will believe. And so Luke closes his account by saying in verse 30, For two whole years Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Boldly and without hindrance, having come through various dangers, various trials, various life-threatening experiences, being opposed not only by the forces of nature under God, but also by the forces of men and by those of the Jews in particular. Yet Paul closes out this chapter in his life, as Luke records it, continuing without hindrance and boldly to preach the kingdom of God and teach about the Lord Jesus Christ. It is interesting that in the opening chapter of Philippians, Paul does carry this a little bit further. Luke doesn't have anything to more, more to say about it, but Paul does write to the Philippians concerning the things that had happened to him about which they had inquired and reminds us of the success of the gospel even there in Rome. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, he says, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Remember, they put him in a house to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. And by evangelizing those guards, by preaching to Jews in their hearing, now the gospel was spreading throughout the palace guard as those soldiers went on their rotation throughout Caesar's uh, palace. Because of my chains, Paul goes on to say in verse 14, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Then he goes on to point out that some had begun to preach because they were envious of him, because they were his rivals, and they were happy now that he was out of circulation, that they could go ahead and preach and appear to be the number one proclaimers of the gospel. But Paul, rather than sitting back and moaning because he was taken out of circulation, rejoiced that whether it was good motives or bad, Christ was being preached. And because of this, he said, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed or will have sufficient courage, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. There are perils in living for Christ. There are perils in preaching the gospel. But there's also great power in that calling that we have in Christ and in that message that we proclaim as preachers of the gospel. And God has called each one of us to carry that treasure in earthen jars. And we know our frailty and we know the threats that can come from every quarter against the gospel. But like Paul, we can also be confident that come hell or high water, we can be faithful to carry out that task and God will preserve and bless so that even the most dangerous situations, we can say, 
have worked out for the advancement of the gospel, for the advancement of the kingdom. Our presbytery isn't uh, facing any wild, stormy, physical winds these days, but we certainly are figuratively experiencing some real stormy seas. And we could be afraid, and many of us are concerned about what's going to happen, and where will people go, and what will be the ultimate outcome of this particular trial. But we can be confident, if we are faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, that whatever the short-run trials and difficulties will be, if we remain loyal to his gospel and to his calling, all these trials will work out for the advancement of the gospel and the advancement of his kingdom. The Lord who owns the waves and rules the winds and protects his people even on the ships at sea will protect and guide us as the people of God through these difficulties, these trials, and we will see the work of God continue to go forward because we preach Jesus Christ as the Lord of glory and the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Lord God, we are easily threatened, and we quickly become fearful. And certainly there are things in our present culture, in our present situation, in our present church setting, which are distressing and concern us and may even frighten us seriously. So Lord, we pray that as winds blow and waves billow up, we would not be afraid, but that we would be confident that you will make even these trials to work for the advancement of your kingdom, the advancement of your gospel. We thank you, O Lord, that from Paul's day to ours, the message is the same. Jesus Christ, crucified as the hope for the world. And we pray, O God, that we would be faithful to stay with you, to trust upon your promise, and to make your word known in our lives and in our words that we wouldn't try to jump ship, that we wouldn't try to swim for the shore, we wouldn't try to make it on our own, but that we would stay under your protecting care, faithfully and loyally near to you, and that you would keep us as you kept Paul and Luke and the others on that ship and carry us on through to great new opportunities for proclamation and for spreading the kingdom of Christ. And we will give you the praise and the glory as the sovereign God of all grace, and all help. Amen.